Welcome to 10 Bestest, where we sift through the noise so you don't have to. Each week we share our 10 favorite things of the moment. Anything goes. Hello, friend. Welcome to 10 Bestest, where we sift through the noise so you don't have to. I'm Brian Hart. I'm Karen McFarlane Holman. And here we go with another podcast yes. episode. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I got some good ones. Ooh, I can't wait. Uh, but I get to go first, so I have to wait a little bit longer. And my cool sheet is going to be a movement, and this is called the Food Waste Fiasco. So last week I talked about Rob Greenfield, and he started this Food Waste Fiasco, but I wanted to really hone in on this. So as you might or might not know, we throw away $165 billion worth of food per year in the United States. That's more than the budgets of the United States national parks, public libraries, federal prisons, veterans healthcare, and FBI, and the FDA combined. About 50 million of our 320 million Americans are food insecure, yet we produce enough food to feed over 500 million Americans. So almost twice as many as we even have. To create uh, just the amount of food that ends up in landfills, we waste enough water to meet the domestic water needs of every American citizen. So there's a huge problem. So on one of Rob's rides across the United States, he decided to get all of his food by dumpster. So he went dumpster diving and got all of his food from there. And he decided to then display all of the food that he found on the ground in a park um, in each town so you, people could see the real impact and how much food is thrown away. So he had way more than he could eat. You have to see it to believe it. Um, so I, I do encourage you to check out the show notes for this. Um, now, the food was displayed by groups and patterns, um, and then he started to give away uh, to people that needed it. Uh, they uh, raised over, or they saved $10,000 worth of food and fed over 500 people. Uh, Long, uh, Rob learned that he can roll up to nearly any city across the United States and collect enough food to feed hundreds of people in a matter of one night. Uh, it's just a really cool thing. I've already ran out of time. I have so many links that are going to be on the show notes for the food waste fiasco. Okay. I can't wait to see the photos to see what this looks like. Yes. And, and just to be able to comprehend. Uh, so what are the show notes? What's the link? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. So it's 10 slash food. Mm. That'll take you right to this episode. So you can get to all the links. I have a bunch of resources on food waste. Um, okay, books great. that I've read. Uh, American Wasteland is one of the books, a really good book. Um, there's Just Eat It, I believe, or Eat It or something like that. Um, there's a couple good docs. Um, so yeah. Definitely Excellent. tons of resources. Excellent. And what I really like is he encourages people that the pictures are amazing too. They mm -hmm. worth a million words or whatever that saying goes. But he says, you know what? The next time you go grocery shopping, he's like, why don't you go to the back, check out the dumpster. And when you see how much food is in there, that's when it will sink in. And wow. maybe you'll, he's like, you don't have to go dumpster diving. You don't have to bring the food home or eat mm -hmm. it. He's mm -hmm. like, but just seeing it will change your life. I believe it. And he says sometimes they empty it or they're locked. Yeah. So you might have to go to a couple different places, but he goes pretty much the, once you see it one time, your life will be changed forever. That's amazing. Yeah. And I know, you know, I worked at the grocery uh, industry for 13, 15 years, something like that, a really long time. And yeah, we threw out produce mm. all the time. I worked in the produce department, but everywhere we threw out stuff. Wow. And, and wow. you almost have to because if it's 
after the date or if it just doesn't look perfect, you can actually get in trouble if you sell it yeah. and it's not quite good. That's why imperfect produce and imperfect mm -hmm. that turned into imperfect foods yeah. has been mentioned actually twice on the show. <laughs> it's <was> so powerful <laughs> and because I messed up, but it's so important and it's just really cool. Um, so I have tons of links, like I said, on our show notes of different things you can do to, to get more um, knowledge about yeah. the food waste problem. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I know that I need a reminder of that. Yeah, um, I know. Personally. And I think about it. It's one of my biggest, like, it's really weighs on me all the time, food mm. waste. I hate, I only oh. buy what I need for fresh food, especially. And since I live by myself, it's a very little, like, my fridge is empty a lot mm. of the times because I, uh, it's like, I can't, it like just uh, yeah. hurts me so bad if food's thrown away. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much welcome. for sharing that. It's really important for yes. all of us. My cool sheet, I'm going to be talking about something education related, and this is ditching the SAT. And I want to give a little of vignette or story of the history of the SAT. And this is really going to then lead towards this idea of ditching it. So let's go back to the first world war. Robert Yerkes, a leading member of the new IQ testing movement, another test that has major problems with it, persuaded the U.S. Army to let him test all recruits for intelligence. This test, it was called the Army Alpha, was the first mass-administered IQ test. One of Yerkes' assistants was a young psychologist named Carl Brigham, who taught at Princeton. And after the war, Brigham became, began adopting or adapting, changing the Army Alpha, mainly by making it more difficult for use as a college admissions test. It was first administered experimentally to a few thousand college applicants in 1926. In 1933, James Bryant Conant, on becoming president of Harvard University, decided to start a new scholarship program for academically gifted boys who did not come from the Eastern boarding schools that were the regular suppliers of Harvard students. Administrators at Harvard liked the SAT because they thought it measured pure intelligence regardless of the quality of the taker's high school education. So in that sense, it was, it was a good idea. But... In 1938, uh, they talked to member schools of the college board and they talked them into using the SAT as a uniform exam, but only for scholarship applicants. However, a few years later, it became the norm for everyone applying for college. And in 1944, after World War II, under contract to the Army and the Navy, the SAT was administered to more than 300,000 people all over the country in a single day. And it goes from here that we, what's very interesting is that if you look at the original SAT and the current SAT, it is not that different. And we're gonna have a link where you can actually go in and compare the two. The SAT is not only a racist, it is also classist and it is sexist and it should be ditched. And guess what? It is being ditched by over a thousand colleges nationwide. Ditch the SAT. Woo, I'm super, this is like a super for this one. <laughs> yeah. Ditch that thing. That's good. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I, throughout my high school career, I always had test anxiety. I was one of those people that yes. was really bad at taking that's tests. That's one of the issues. So when you come to the SAT, that's like the mother of all tests uh -huh. that your whole entire college career depends on. 
I ended up, well, I wouldn't say that this is the only reason, but I never took it. I was too freaked out. I ended because I was like, well, if my route then will be community college, I don't have, this is the only way I don't have to take it. Mm -hmm. I can do that. And that, I mean, my life could be totally different and I have no regrets. I'm super happy that I actually turned out this way, but I probably didn't go to a four year college because of my anxiety over the SATs. <sighs> So I'm super glad. I was just yes. way ahead of my time, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but uh, exactly. I'm so glad that they're ditching that. Yeah. Because it was a big barrier. really freaked and me out. that is a barrier for so many people. That, that text, test anxiety mm -hmm. is really common. Yeah. And so if you have a whole bunch of people who are anxious, they know, even if you know the material or you know that idea, mm -hmm. you know how to do it, if you have it put in front of you, and you have that anxious feeling, you're not yeah. going to be able to show what you know. Yeah. And my brain will automatically just like freeze up and forget stuff that I know backwards and forwards. And I just completely mm -hmm. go blank. Exactly. And I actually, when I got my drone, uh, UAV drone certificate, I started like re going through this like oh, anxiety. Wow. And this was the first time 40 some years later where I finally was able to kind of conquer mm -hmm. my fear of test taking, but That's I was great. still super stressed. Yeah. And, but I, the one good thing about when you are this way that you will study maybe four or five times harder. So the person that was taking it with me would be like, wow, dude, you're taking this really seriously. You know, you don't have to, you only have to get this percent. Like you'll be fine. And I was like, I know but I'm gonna keep studying like over and over. I took like six practice tests. And I think they took one or two, you know, I was just, so that's like where I overcompensate. That can be a good thing, but it's because I'm so flippin' scared. Yeah, well, and you, it's almost to. like for that, you had, not only did you wanna pass this test that was important to you, but overcoming this yeah. lifelong yeah. issue that yeah. you had and you did. So yeah. congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. cool. And then, you know, it is very affirming once you get over that fear or or at least conquer it at that mm. one particular time, you feel really good. And I made sure that I celebrated that and I got awesome. higher than another person. So higher score. <laughs> yeah. So, just saying. Yeah, I know. I am so glad it's being colleges are recognizing yeah. that. No, we don't need it. There so are way overdue. better ways to yeah. tell whether to predict success. And yeah, it's just, um, I'm so glad it's been a long time coming. It's finally here. And same with the graduate admissions tests um, mm. for all sorts of standardized tests yeah. are going by the wayside wow. as they should. Yeah, that's so opinion. cool. Well, thank you so much. For You're welcome. That. Appreciate that. All right. Well, my cool sheet is going to be uh, a website and this uh, kind of, this is similar to the last school sheet. And this is a website called The Story of Stuff. So originally, The Story of Stuff was a 21-minute short film hosted by Annie Lennard. It came out in 2009. Now, I remember very distinctly in 2009 when this first came out when I saw it. Uh, I was on the board at the Salem Progressive Film Series, and we were always looking for documentaries to show um, to our patrons. And we, we had a couple years where we really liked to show shorts before our feature film. And this one just, it 
it impacted me so much. A lot of my life decisions have been based on that movie. So I love when you find something that is just a sea change moment that really changes you. One of the couple of the biggest thing, takeaways from that is um, the anti-consumerism, kind of the model of how it talks about how you can't run on a linear system with finite resources. It is impossible to do forever. So, and it talks about the entire cycle of natural resources, um, are unnatural anything, you know, into the factory, into the production, buying them and then trashing them. Uh, it also taught me a lot about planned obsolescence. This is the first time I heard about that too. So they actually make things that are good enough so you feel like you can buy it, that it is worth buying, but it is also built in to break so you have to buy it again later. And they actually, when it first started coming out, they, they were like, mm, how long? They were very open about it. Oh, this could probably, a blender could probably last five years. If it's four years, they might not, they might buy a different brand. But if it's five, it's just enough to make it last where people will buy a new one. So, uh, super. And then even perceived obsolescence, uh, obsolescence might even be worse where that's just like, you got to get the newest thing. So the newest iPhone. And I'm still guilty of this one a little bit. There's now there's so much more on this website than just this movie. In fact, they've done like 15 different movies, the story of cap and trade, the story behind bottled water, the story of cosmetics, the story of electronics, the story of citizens versus FEC, the story of broke, the story of change, the story of solutions, the story of microbees, the story of microfibers, the story of plastic, an animated short and a feature that I think won an Emmy. Definitely check out the story of stuff. <laughs> Oh, planned obsolescence. I I know that concept. I didn't know how to name. Yeah. Oh, it drives me crazy. It's, it is. And that, that whole, like, they don't make it like they used to is true. It's a real mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, because they started making this planned obsolescence where things <sighs> would break down super fast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That and sounds amazing. I've never heard so of There's so many different yeah. other links. They have blogs. They had a podcast. It was short, only 18 episodes, but still we're checking out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, their blog. They, um, they're still putting out movies. They have so many different resources. So definitely worth checking out this website. Love it. I will. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right. And don't forget that oh. you can check all of those show notes out, I should say, on tebesis.com slash food. Excellent. Yeah. Michael Sheet. I am going to be talking about a poet. And this is Rumi. In episode 180, guest Mickey Trowbridge shared a beautiful poem by the world-renowned and much-loved poet Rumi. She talked about the poem and how it's meaning and how she uses it as a meditation, but she did not talk about Rumi himself, and so I wanted to share him because he's so amazing. His full name, Maulana Jaluddin Rumi, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but we will call him Rumi which is how he is known. He was a 13th century Persian poet, an Islamic dervish, and a Sufi mystic. He is regarded as one of the greatest spiritual masters and poets. He is most famous for his lyrics and for his epic work, whose name translates to spiritual couplets. This piece was especially influential in mystical thought and literature throughout the Middle East. He was born in 1207 AD, and he belonged to a family of highly educated theologians, but he created accessible teachings that touched so many different kinds of people because he made use of everyday life circumstances to describe the spiritual world. 
Rumi's poems have acquired immense popularity, especially among Persian speakers of Afghanistan, Iran, and Tajikistan. But Rumi's popularity has gone beyond national and ethnic borders. He is considered to be one of the major classical poets worldwide. Rumi's works have been translated to many languages across the world, Russian, German, Urdu, Turkish, Arabic, French, Italian, English, and Spanish. Rumi was a disciple of one of his father's students, and under his guidance, he practiced Sufism and acquired a lot of knowledge about spiritual matters and secrets of the spiritual world. Rumi inherited his father's spiritual leader position and became a prominent religious leader. And by the time he was 24 years old, he had proven himself as a well-informed scholar in the field of religious science, and he wrote absolutely gorgeous poetry, Rumi. Oh, thank you so much yes. for sharing that. Can you, you believe that hasn't uh, been a cool sheet yet? I mean, I can and I can to the yeah. same time. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because when I saw the show notes, I was like, oh, are we sure we haven't talked about that? I know I've heard it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, Mickey talked about that. Yeah. And I loved her approach, too, because she takes one meditation specific yes. and like kind of makes it her almost her mantra meditation yes, for, the, for year, the year, which is such a cool idea. Yeah. That's a cool sheet all in its totally. own. Like just that. I mean, she shared the specific one, but that practice is really cool. I love that idea. So thank you so much, Mickey, for that. Yes. Um, but yeah, Rumi, Rumi is one of those magical people that whenever I read anything from Rumi, I'm just like immediately yes. centered, calm, yes. at ease. I feel better. Mm -hmm. It's always insightful. I'll think about it in different parts of my life. I'll think about it different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so good. I've yes. never, you know, and of course I'm probably looking at a highlight at work, but I never see something and I'm like, eh, I don't no, know about that one. All of it. Yes. You know, it's always just like, oh yeah. Uh-huh. So, so magical. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. It makes me want to go check out some Rumi. Yeah, so. read some tonight. Yes. And don't forget, you can check out some of that on our show notes at tambesis.com slash food. That will take you to all the show notes, and you can check out some Rumi. All right. My cool sheet is going to be a book, and this book is called American Hippopotamus. It is by John Moalem, I believe. Sorry, John. Uh, in the early 1900s, the U.S. was in this meat, this extreme meat scarcity because of population growth and growing demand for exporting meat to other countries. People referred to it as the meat question. So the question being, how are we going to raise enough meat for all the people here? And they, I mean, they were freaking out. There was no like, oh, we can't just eat vegetables or, you know, go vegan. There was no vegan. People ate meat. Uh, material and food resources were quickly running out as we settled to the West and people were starting to panic. Something, someone had to come up with a bold solution and someone did. The, the solution was the hippopotamus. Uh, the hippo could live in swampland and, aquatic and eat aquatic vegetation that was overrunning certain areas of the United States and the Gulf and then the South area and the return in return, produced tons of meat for the people. So as you can imagine, these elephants are gigantic and we, so we could eat them. So Frederick Burnham and Fitz uh, Duganese, I believe, led this charge through public and all the way into Congress. The crazy thing is that these people 
Well, they were kind of known as uh, they spent time in Africa and they were very uh, uh, talented outdoorsmen and guides and scouts, but they also hated each other. They tried to assassinate each other multiple times in their past, but they, they met at this place like coincidentally and they kind of formed this uh, respect and, and bond through trying to make people eat hippo meat, <laughs> which is just wild. So um, it kind of ended because in World War II, we started rationing meat and people um, wanted to uh, consume less meat, but also they were just a little bit freaked out about eating hippo. It just didn't fly in the United States. So uh, the, the meat uh, question was not answered by hippo. Definitely worth checking out this book, American Hippopotamus. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's like this like truth is stranger than fiction. Exactly. For exactly. Sure. Exactly. For sure. I um well and it it reminds me there's a, a another question, a bigger question that a lot of people bring up and that is why do we yeah. eat this animal and yes. not this animal? And here's it's brought up again here. Yeah. And it and I mean, yeah, because it seems ridiculous to us in the United States now. Now, if it would have been decided back then, we'd be eating hippo meat all the time. Hippo burgers, hippo ribs, hippo oh, whatever. So and odd. we wouldn't even think it's weird because right. we just would have adopted it by now. And growing up a few generations later, So does it anyone eat hippo? Uh, you know, that's like the wild thing because, you know, the United States is particularly kind of weird about food. We, we like what we like, and anybody that eats anything different than what we say is okay, yeah. like you were talking about, then they're weird, and we're not. So, but I don't think, as far as I know, that no one's major diet comes from the hippopotamus, yeah. even in Africa, where they're, you know, where they're native species there. Um, but well, it, it yeah. is interesting that, um, you know, that we're so freaked out about, yeah, cow's fine, but, you know, and, but, oh my gosh, if you eat, you know, a different kind of animals, certainly if you get to like pet animals, you know, dog, where that might be ate in other countries. And we're just like, those people are like savage, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or we, at, at best, or we joke about it at best. And, and, and it's just, yeah, it's a really strange thing about uh, food diet and things like that, because Everything about hippos made sense on paper. They, the, the, the way that the amount of meat that you got per whatever hoof or whatever was like exponentially better than cow. Uh, oh my gosh. And, and so everything about it made sense. We just couldn't, we couldn't do it. We couldn't yeah. get over it. Yeah. We couldn't. Again, and it's kind of like that, um, not the planned obsolescence, but the other one. You know, it's the fear of what like people oh, would mm -hmm, think. Like that, mm -hmm. like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and again, it kind of ties into the food shortage, too, on the, the first thing that I talked about uh, this week. Yes. You know, uh, it's just so wild that we have all of these solutions I know. and things. And, and there's just... the, the whole issue of just import, like bringing in um, a species that isn't native. Yeah. A non-native species. Although that happens all the time. And a lot oh, of yeah. the things that we have on the regular are from other countries that oh, were never mm -hmm. native to the yeah. United States, yeah. certainly. So yeah, but we think that, oh, that would be weird, but we've done it before. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone came through the store right now and gave me a hippo burger, I would probably hesitate to eat it, you know? I am kind of a weirdo that I'll try almost anything, mm -hmm. um, so I probably wouldn't wait too long, but I think most people would stay far away. They'd be like, you said what? Yeah, exactly, um, yeah, I ain't touching that. With a 10-foot bull. Yeah. Um, and another side note, Burnham was the inspiration behind the Boy Scouts. 
So it was developed oh. from him and inspired Indiana Jones, his lifestyle. So, uh, oh my gosh. The book is actually more about the rivalry between these two, like, wild people and their history. Mm-hmm. And it was even an option for a movie, but it's never come out yet. Um, so that's fascinating. But I want to focus on this hippo deal because that part blew me away the first time I heard about it. So bizarre. Yeah. So bizarre. Thanks yeah. for sharing that You're story. I've not heard that story before. Yeah, it's ever. so wild. I heard it the first time on This American Life. Um, so uh, I will have a link to that and the book on our show notes at 10 slash food. My cool sheet has to do with two pretty awesome things, kitchen and science. And I will be talking about soapstone. Soapstone is composed primarily of talc and shares many of the physical properties with that mineral. Talc, if you don't know, is a uh, hydrous, which means there's water in there, magnesium silicate mineral. So it's got a chemical composition that includes magnesium, silicon, oxygen, and hydrogen. And sometimes aluminum is incorporated into the structure naturally. The physical properties of soapstone make it valuable for many different uses. And these useful physical properties include that it is soft. It is very easy to carve. You could just carve it with your own hands. It is non-porous, so it's not going to absorb a lot of things. And it has low electrical conductivity. It is heat resistant and it has high specific heat capacity. So that means it can absorb a lot of heat and then hold it once it's there. It is also resistant to changing its composition if there's a really acidic environment or a strong basic environment. Since soapstone is a naturally occurring rock, its mineral composition can vary and its composition depends on the parent rock material and the temperature and pressure conditions of around that environment. And as a result, the physical properties of the soapstone can vary a little bit between locations, but overall it has all those properties that I just talked about. And given that it's soft and easy to carve and it's heat resistant, you can imagine how it was used over history. People have quarried soapstone for thousands of years. Native Americans in Eastern North America used the soft rock to make bowls and cooking slabs and smoking pipes and ornaments starting 5,000 years ago. Native Americans on the west coast of the United States of present day Southern California, they felt it was so important to get the soapstone that they would travel in canoes from mainland all the way over 60 miles offshore just to get it. And it is still used today. It is beautiful. It is so nice to the touch. Soapstone. Okay, how have I never heard of soapstone? Well, it's now, not. I don't have any of that like in my house that I don't even know, right? It is, is it a very specific thing? So it's possible that you don't. And okay. the reason would be that it is so soft that like you'll never have surfaces. Like we get granite mm-hmm. because you can cut onto a similar properties um, and you can cut and then not slice it up because yeah. everyone wants it to stay nice. Yeah. So the thing about soapstone that's so lovely is that you can actually carve it so you can make things yourself. So I would say it's more for people who want to make their own things. Okay. And if they don't care if they get a little bit cut or dinged dent, up yeah, or dinged whatever. up exactly. Okay. So Wow, it sounds fascinating. Yeah. I was like, I know my way around the kitchen pretty well, but I had no idea what any of that was. And I, I kept thinking like the aha moment was going to come and go, oh yeah, and that's what 
you know, everybody's, yeah, yeah. you know, cast iron skillets made out of, or something, you know, right. obviously not that because right. it's in the name, but I was like waiting for that, like, oh yeah, and I have five of those and I never knew it, but like, no, no so it I, is something a little, a little more uh, specific. Yes, and I would say so for Where the modern kitchen. Where could you get some kitchen, if you wanted to? You can just order it on Amazon. Like, oh, wow. you can well, just, of course. Yeah, right. I mean, you can <laughs> you can just buy it. Yeah, and I've had friends who've um, just like made stuff that are beautiful, and I've been like, I want so much want to just try doing oh, it. Oh wow! Um, because it's amazing how smooth you just so it's so satisfying. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, like, I just love it. <laughs> oh my gosh, this yeah. is so cool. Now, of course, because of a former cool sheet, the frequency illusion. I'm gonna see and hear you about this all now. the time mm -hmm. and go like oh yeah so you know what I always wonder about the frequency illusion though is like when people you know if this is always happening all the time like what is what do I look like when people say blah 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 soapstone and I'm just like glossy eye like uh-huh <laughs> like I know what that means <laughs> I mean, that's I know, the weirdest right, part right right Right. Because I'm sure there's some of us like, oh, yeah, I made this out of soapstone. I was like, cool. <laughs> and I'm genuinely like, they made that. That's cool. Yeah. And, I and that's probably what you were say, focused on. Yeah. What's the heck yes. is soapstone? Yes. You exactly. made that word up. Right. Right. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, but if you want to learn more about it, yes. there'll be a link. Yes. Check out yeah. the show notes, tenbestest.com slash food. And then we'll... You can learn way more about soapstone and maybe even carve out your own stuff. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. I'm going to be talking about a YouTube channel, and this YouTube channel is called Invisible People. This channel shows the amazing potential of YouTube. So it's more than cat videos. I know. I hate to say that. I love cat videos, and that doesn't mean I don't like them, but... This is really the power of YouTube. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was founded in November 2008 by activist and former television executive Mark Horvath. Um, so they describe it as they want to imagine a world where everyone has a place to call home. Uh, each day we work to fight uh, homelessness and give a face while educating uh, individuals about the systematic issues that contribute to its existence. Through storytelling, education, news, and activism, we are changing the narrative on homelessness. So the way they're doing this is they interview people on the streets, homeless people on the streets all over the United States and other countries as well. Now, Horvath worked as a television distribution executive, like I mentioned, um, but he had an addiction to drugs and alcohol, and it resulted in him becoming homeless in 1995. After eight years, he uh, finally got in rehabilitation and was doing better, but then in the Great Recession, he lost his job again. So he returned to Los Angeles and again was facing homelessness. Uh, he recorded interviews with other homeless people on his flip cam and posted them on YouTube and Twitter and Invisible People was born. Um, it launched, it immediately resonated with so many people. He's, like I said, he's interviewed people in over 100 cities across the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Um, he gives homeless a face and a voice, um, which is often you know, the, the, and hence the name Invisible People, because a lot of the times when you're walking by, you kind of pretend that they don't exist. Maybe you don't want to hear their story, but a lot of times these people are not homeless by choice. They've been, you know, they're not just all meth heads or whatever. They have stories. They're real people that need help and want to do better. Check out Invisible People. Ah, oh, I love that 
taking the a group that's not seen a lot mm -hmm. and when you put the stories to them stories are so powerful and to their faces and it just brings so much empathy and understanding yeah. that is so needed yeah absolutely I, I mean even for someone that um is, tries to be empathetic and passionate it is very easy to just either make up your own story about yeah, somebody yeah. that's homeless, especially when you, and, and, you know, and homelessness is just a growing problem all around the United States, but here in our hometown and up in Portland, it's, it's getting really bad and people get frustrated and I get it, but, um, and it's easy to make excuses or, yeah. oh, they're all addicted to drugs or they they got mental health problems. And some people want to help, but they're still a little like, they will say, they, they come up with a story. But when you hear the story from that person's mouth, right. it, totally, they're human. It changes everything. And I, what I really like is he'll do follow-ups. So he'll oh, maybe nice. interview somebody and then say, oh, here they are 10 years later. Mm. Or it's, you know maybe not 10 years, you know, a couple years, they, some of them started their own YouTube channel um, themselves cool. and given That's updates. Um, yeah, it's so heartwarming that, you know, hey, this person now isn't homeless anymore. They're, mm -hmm. they're in college and they got a job or they got a, you know, it's it's so cool to see. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I it's love definitely it. a really, really endearing uh, YouTube channel. And it does, it shows that there's, the, the YouTube is a powerful platform now. Yeah. And there can be a lot of good things coming out of this. So it's yeah. really cool. I am definitely going to watch, dive into that yes. and watch some of those. And check them out on our show notes, tempestestyle.com yes. slash food, and you can go right to it. Yes. Michael Sheet, I am going to be talking about an artist and an illustrator. I love this person. This is Edward Gorey, and it is not a coincidence that I waited till October to talk about him. Edward Gorey was a prolific illustrator and he was also a writer and I just found this out when I was doing research on him. He is a Tony Award winning costume designer, but he is most famous for his illustrated books. He has this characteristic pen and ink drawing style and he is often depicting vaguely unsettling narrative scenes and in this Victorian and Edwardian settings and that kind of vibe. In 1963, he published an alphabet book. It was so grim and it had this premise of this genre of making children feel comfortable or uncomfortable and inspiring them to learn. This genre was this macabre humor and he really brought it to a whole new level. He, so here's his alphabet book. A is for Amy who fell down the stairs. And the name of this alphabet book was the Gashley Crumb Tinies. So all these, this idea of the tinies were, were these little characters. And just that name, Gashley Crumb, you get, you get the vibe there. Um, so B is for Basil, assaulted by bears. And of course he has these pictures that go along with it. This is a children's book. Ah, C is for Clara, who wasted away. D is for Desmond, thrown out of a sleigh. Wow, yes. Uh, so this is like part Tim Burton, long before there was Tim Burton, part Edgar Allan Poe, long after Edgar Allan Poe. And this book just exudes his, all of this, this mastery of how he draws and then just, um, sharing this love of macabre that he has. So he was born in 1925 and he died fairly recently in 2000. 
I am fascinated by his work and um, you should definitely check him out. Edward Gorey. <laughs> Perfect last name too for I kind know. of his style. I know. It's like he had to do it. it exactly. It, it was, it's just, and that was truly his last name. Wow, so that's wild. He, he <laughs> personified his name. Yeah, he, he embraced it yes, and yes. took it to the next level. Exactly. Uh, so another person, I love this show. I haven't heard of him and I can't wait to check him out. Yes. It's a, it is quite scary that these were children's books. Um, I know. Well, but uh, they look like they'd be perfect for me, especially he, right now in the Halloween time yes. as we're recording and, this. And I would say Fantastic. definitely older children. So um, my <laughs> friend Kelly, Kelly Hagen, is the one who told me, introduced me to Edward Gorey. And I would say when Kelly's kids were, you know, they're more like 11, you know, yeah. 10 or 11. I mean, you start <laughs> getting into that sort of creepy stuff. Yeah. And they loved Edward Gorey, too. Okay. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's nothing Save it. to... Read to your six-year-old in the middle, you know, to go to bed. Right, go to yeah, going to bed. No, no. no. <laughs> uh, well, but I, um, I went to with Kelly. Um, went to this Edwardian ball in San Francisco, oh, that's and cool. they had um, the stairs going up. They had these little vignettes, and they had little Edward Gorey like pictures oh, cool. and stuff. It was really like it just you got that dark uh, vibe. So, so yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to dive in and check that out. Yes. It'll be fun. And in time for Halloween. Yes, So absolutely. It's perfect. Those of you who are listening, time. watching, as soon as we release this, happy Halloween. And of course, you might be listening later, but yeah. Edward Gorey's still fun no matter when. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people that like to, to look at the scary stuff year-round. They wish Halloween was happening every month, yes. I think. <laughs> and I love those people. Yes. <laughs> All right, my cool sheet is going to be a short film, and this is called Let Things Rot. So this is in partnership with uh, uh, Fantastic Fungi, which is a form of cool sheet, and so, but it's a standalone short film that just came out, and I had to talk about it. It's directed by Matteo. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put that up on the graphics because I can't say it, so you have to watch YouTube check out that name. And it's uh, in collaboration with our foundress, Juliana Furchi. Uh, and this is a seven and a half minute short doc. So you can get through it pretty quickly. The cinematography, of course, is stunning. The music is moving. It starts with the question, have you ever seen a fallen tree in the forest? Have you ever stopped to observe it? If everyone did, everything would be different and everything would be better. I love the way it starts just like that. When the leaves fall off a tree and to the ground, some may see this as an end, but really it's just the beginning. Uh, it talks about this life cycle of everything around us, and it's not just trees and plants, it's everything. And it says, have you ever stopped to think that the, maybe the noblest part of a tree's life is once it hits the ground? Uh, it's just so beautiful. It really got me uh quite emotional when I started watching it because it, 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 she goes into the forest and she's looking at this fallen tree and she puts her hands into the dirt that it's just creating this really rich soil and fungus, uh, mushrooms are growing and it feeds more nourishing so other plants can grow. It really is, it's, a, it's a, you know, they talk about the cycle of life, but to see it in these beautiful imagery, images is just, it's really breathtaking. It shows the importance of the ecosystem while delving into the significance of decomposition and what it means for the world. Um, through fungi, we can learn an importance of cycle. And uh, it's just, it's so beautiful. I don't want to go too much further in because I'm running out of time. And you just need to check out the short. 
once again, that is let things rot. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I think when you when you learn about decomposition and and rotting, you do appreciate. You know, when you walk through the forest, you're like, oh, the beautiful trees. Oh, that's just a rotting piece of wood. Like, you actually appreciate it. And yeah. you notice the ferns coming out of it. And you notice the other things. Yeah, it's just, um, that's amazing. I will love that. I yeah, already know. Yeah, it's beautiful. And again, they timed it perfectly at time of recording. They they release it during fall. So uh, obviously, yes. you're seeing a lot of mm-hmm. leaves. You're see- and that'll make you see it in a new way. But I love that idea that death is not the end. It's the beginning yeah. That is such a beautiful thing. And it is true. If we started thinking that way, everybody would be better. Uh, I think yes, uh, I it's just, it's so beautiful. But when you see it like firsthand, what it's doing for the uh, environment and the world, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's breathtaking. Yeah. So, yeah. It w- it's imperative. Yeah. yeah. So you can check that out on our show notes, tempestus.com slash food. And check it out for yourself. Excellent. Thank you so much. I can't wait to watch that. Yeah, you're going to love it. I know I will. (laughs) My cool sheet. I'm going to be talking about a YouTube channel. And this channel, I love this channel. It is called Like Stories of Old. If you love stories, if you love the meaning behind stories and characters and analysis such as we learn in things like The Hero's Journey, this channel is for you. The channel creator gushes about how stories have always had a strong impact on him and it truly shows on this channel. I think we'd all agree with him that stories affect how we look at the world, how they help make us better people, and that we can better understand the impact that stories have on us if we not only enjoy the stories themselves for whatever fun or um, that they give us at the time, but if we do spend some time analyzing them and considering underlying themes and archetypes and things like that. That's where this channel comes in. He selects some stories that are well-known, such as Lord of the Rings, and some that are lesser known, and then discusses themes that appear in them. He also loves philosophy, clearly. And there are several videos he created that point out where, for example, stoicism appears in uh, movies such as the Shawshank Redemption. He talks about the metaphysics of the movie Inception. He also brings in TV shows such as one of my favorites, which is a former sheet, The Good Place. And he talks about ethics by talking about that TV show. I've also seen him on occasion talk about gaming, where he discusses the unfulfilled potential of Minecraft, where assuming a different perspective on the world can help us. He also covers some filmmakers, such as talking about humanistic cinema with Akira Kurosawa as the case study. I love this channel like stories of old. Oh man, I am definitely going to love this one. You are, you are. And in fact, I uh, actually talked with a friend of mine, Jason. Uh, We were going to start another YouTube channel, which is probably insane. It is insane, but (laughs) I really want to do it someday, maybe. 
Um, and it was kind of similar-ish, but a little bit different theme. Mm -hmm. So I love it. So I'm like extra connected to this right now. Yes. I cannot wait to check it out. But it was kind of my take on it because we were all going to produce like different segments. And my segment was oh. kind of deep diving on mm -hmm. movies and characters and mm. taking philosophies and things to it. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like maybe this is already happening uh, in a similar or a little bit different way. I can't wait. I can't wait to check it well, out. Well, as, as so we good. say, this is proof that people love it because yeah. I don't remember how many followers he has but it's in the hundreds of thousands Yeah, and and people love it I, I discovered it because you know YouTube's pretty good at suggesting things mm -hmm. and I kept watching these different videos and at some point I put it together they're all coming from the, from the same, same channel yeah that takes I, a while sometimes yeah, for that yeah. to finally click and you're like oh yeah that one yes yes yeah because I kept seeing L-S-O- Way of oh yeah oh oh and I was like yeah what's that whatever and then I was like wait a minute this is a really good channel that's so cool I I kind of love it when those moments happen because it's just like all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and then yeah. you're like whoa yeah okay oh that's everywhere kind of the frequency illusion again yes but um, yes. you know that happened with me did I ever tell you the story happened with me with Ted so people kept sending me these talks and I'm like oh these talks are so amazing like oh, and I get like and, uh, I didn't know what Ted like who's Ted you know like everybody right. kind of the joke and of course it's funny because then I became a TEDx uh, curator organizer mm -hmm. had events you know it became like my life for years and years and years and still is a big part of my life but even back then I was like what oh what what is this yes what is this Ted thing and why do they keep why do these different people <laughs> yeah. keep sending me this? they're all coming oh, from the funny. same place that's interesting yeah yeah <laughs> I should check that out <laughs> So I'm glad I checked that out, and I'm glad you checked this one out. Yes. that's going to be really, yeah. really cool. You'll like it. I'm going to love it, I'm sure. Don't forget, show notes, 10bestest.com slash food can take you to that channel and all the other things that we've talked about um, today and all this week. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, share it with a friend. Rate us even if you want. Uh, we appreciate you so much. And I'm Brian Hart. I'm Karen McFarlane-Holman. And most importantly, don't forget to stay curious. Want to learn more about this week's cool sheets? Head on over to 10bestus, that's 10bestus.com, for links to all of our cool sheets. And sign up for our monthly newsletter with bonus cool sheets and other fun stuff. 10bestus will be back with an all-new episode next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. 